Shout out to Clarity for supporting this episode and providing us with the samples. I've been battling allergies for years now. Let me tell you, they've been a real ordeal in my life. Luckily for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. This double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available release sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to ClaritinD.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. What's up, gang? Welcome to The Greatness Machine. I'm your host, Darius Mershazde. I'm so pumped to have you here with me. Now, listen, The Greatness Machine, we're about two things. Number one, people who are living their passions. And number two, those who are creating greatness in the world and doing both of these things despite the odds against them. Each episode, we're going to feature interviews with game changers, business leaders, you know, telling us their origin stories, what made them tick, what got them to where they are now. Why? So it can help you step into your greatness within your life, your business, and your career. Occasionally, you might hear a few solo episodes from myself, moi, as I say, as I leverage my 20 years of entrepreneurship as a CEO and founder to help you grow and level up in your journey to scale your life and your business. So, Come be a fly on the wall, enjoy the conversation, and I'm stoked to have you here with me. Guys, welcome to today's episode of The Greatest Machine. I'm your host, Darius Machazza, and boy, do we have a special guest. My man, Trey Taylor, is in the house. What's up, Trey? Darius, good to see you, man. Really good to see you. I've been looking forward to this show. You don't know this, but I've kind of taken a little bit of a break from podcasting and listeners are going to be like, what are you talking about, Darius? And I'm like, yeah, you know, I, I, I'm doing this new private equity thing. So I recorded like 45 shows in the first three months of the year. Yeah, Brutal. I believe that. Yeah, I was, yeah. Hammering, I was hammering out like 13 to 20 shows a month, knowing I was going to be like swamped with like capital raising and whatnot. So I, I'm a little out of practice, man. I've been doing like one a week. <laughs> That's like slow for me. You got to get back in the swing of things. I understand. Yeah, that's good though. You got all that. Uh, you got all your reps in already, so it's uh, it's like riding a bike now. Exactly. Exactly. So, uh, hey, do you mind if I do a little bit of housekeeping and then we'll get popping on the show? No, please, your show. Yeah. All right. So for listeners who are new to the show, The Greatness Machine, we're about two things. People are living their passions and those creating greatness in the world and doing so despite the odds. My man Trey here is neither short of passion or greatness. So I met Trey. This is kind of an interesting story. We're 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 at GOT. Boston, MIT, and he was a speaker at this year's event. And we got paired up where we where we were talking about our family and our kids. And I don't remember the specific topic, but I do remember we were talking about our family and our kids. And it was kind of a breakout session. And uh, funny enough is I think it was maybe six months or a year earlier. Now, I knew he was a speaker just because we know who all the speakers are. But I didn't know what he was a speaker for, which I you typically don't know until you kind of dig into it. And then I realized that he's a speaker of this book that I heard great things about, which is a CEO only does three things that one of my clients, Eddie Perez, who is a great CEO down in Atlanta, was ranting and raving about. And we started talking about the topic. And I'm like, man, I, I, I preach that I have my own version of, of what the three things right. they are, and they line up perfectly with what Trey says. And I was like, man, I got to beat this guy. This is a conversation Eddie and I had nine months before I actually randomly ran into Trey. And then here I am talking to the guy who's wrote the book about the thing I was talking to my buddy about. So man, it was like a small world. And uh, you did an amazing talk at GOT. I thought it was actually Thank one you. of the best talks this year. Thank um, you. Obviously, man, you're a super successful, bright person. And I was like, and for me, successful, bright, interesting, check all the boxes. I was like, man, I got to get this guy to come to the greatness machine. So man, welcome to the show. Thank you, man. I'm happy uh, to be here because I listened to the show. So I know uh, the things that you guys cover. I'm taking my notes from time to time. I listen to it on long drives. You know, I, it's it's in the stack, man, for sure. So it's a it's a uh, great joy personally to be on the show. Appreciate it, appreciate it, and uh, and then you then you know where all the where all the shenanigans are going to be happening today. Uh. <laughs> so I, I prepped for your landmines, yeah. <laughs> you know, 
that it's like a warm bath. You just feel comfortable. You don't even know what's happening to you. Uh, I'm like boiling the frog. Um, so I'm going to do your formal bio. And then I'd love if you wouldn't mind, like, kind of give some of your background origin story because you have a really interesting background story. And I think, I think it really would serve our audience. Trey is the author of a CEO only does three things. I'm going to throw it up in front of the camera now. Amazing book. Uh, he's also a managing director of Trinity Blue, which is his family office. Uh, CEO of Taylor Insurance Services, which is one of the portfolio companies, which a lot of this this amazing value and and growth in his life came from. And he's also like we're going to do some vanity metrics here. One of Georgia's Trend Magazine's 40 Under 40. You still under 40 years old? You still a young? I'm not. That that's an old thing that I still brag about. If they did a I'm, 50 under 50, I hope I would qualify, but just barely. I, I'm gunning for 100 out of 100. That's my my. Right. <laughs> I love it, man. So Trey, like, uh, if you wouldn't mind, like, give our audience a little bit of your background. Yeah, for sure. So I grew up as a suburban kid in Atlanta in an entrepreneurial family. So my dad started a, a string of video stores, like in the early 80s. He eventually sold that to a a roll up in that community that became uh, sort of a national brand, and it was kind of cool for us because they used his. Um, you know, store branding logo and a lot of his hiring concepts and things of that nature. So when he sold that, it was about the time that I was headed off to college. So the family moved home uh, to where we had sort of moved from. And then I headed off uh, to college. I went, um, I went to college and then sort of got bored really quickly and found out about this exchange program that my college had uh, with Oxford University. And so I exchanged into that uh, Darius, I don't think I told you the story, but like I got there and realized about a weekend that it was a total scam. Like it was just a money making mm. thing for a certain guy who was plugged in at Oxford. So I quit, got my tuition money back, and then I was supposed to be gone three months, but I was gone 15 months. And uh, finally, that money ran out. And I called my dad and said, Hey, you know, might want to be staying a little longer. And he was like, Well, you're cut off if you don't come home. So I had to come home. Uh, finished uh, my college education at Emory University in Atlanta, took a year off and then went to law school at Tulane in New Orleans. And then in my second year transitioning into 3L year, I got an offer to work with a guy that I had already done a summer clerkship with, but who was moving to this company that six weeks later became WebMD. So I was one of the first hundred employees uh, at WebMD, the only law clerk to my knowledge that they ever hired and uh, worked in an office, the general counsel's office, that, that we sort of migrated to be more business development focused. Um, so in the, you know, Internet 1.0, we were doing deals on a Thursday that would be on the, you know, Wall Street Journal on Friday morning. It was amazing. So um, that was really fun. And it was like a graduate education in and of itself. Um, and then I went into the venture business and did, um, did really good um, work and was very successful until 9-11 happened. And 9-11 wiped DC out in Atlanta almost entirely. And so I had to, you know, I still had a mortgage. I still had a girlfriend. She still wanted to eat. And so uh, I went in at, into an in-house position with uh, Earthlink, which is a local, uh, it was a national ISP, but uh, local mm -hmm. uh, headquartered in Atlanta. And then had been hired at AOL to go take a job at AOL when my dad became mysteriously sick and passed away while he was on vacation. He passed away of COVID. This was in 2005. And we didn't know that. It was called SARS-2 at that point. And, um, and so we didn't know until a couple of years ago what it was and you know how it behaved. But it was exactly the journey that a lot of American families have gone through in the past three years. So I had to come home and take over his business, which had become the family business, which was an insurance agency. So oh. in 2005, with the intent of leaving, like, get it stabilized, and then go work this job at AOL, where they had hired me to do a billion-dollar um, disp disposition of asset deals. So it was a really good job, uh, but I never left. So I fell in love with what we were doing. I fell in love with a local girl. I fell in love with the community and that sort of thing. So my life sort of took a different trajectory. And I ran that business with my brother for a long time. Until 2019, we lost my brother. And we had two other things that happened that were way more positive than that. But it basically put us in a situation where we had a, a need to do some money management. Um, and we had grown up management teams in each of our operating businesses. So I sort of took a promotion for myself and I run the family office now, in addition to speaking and writing. 
Shout out to Clarity for supporting this episode and providing us with the samples. Hey there, friends. It's Darius from Shazda here, and I have a little confession to make. You see, I've been battling allergies for years now. And let me tell you, they've been a real ordeal in my life. Allergies have been my constant companion. They stop me from fully enjoying the little things in life, from canceling plans with friends because of sudden allergy attack to missing out on an outdoor activity because of the sneezing fits. Allergies have been a real nuisance. Luckily, for those of us who live with symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. This double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing and a runny nose, itchy, watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. I've been a Claritin D user for many, many years now, and let me tell you, it's made a world of difference. Since I started using Claritin D, my symptoms have improved dramatically. Now I can breathe easier, enjoy outdoor activities without worrying about sneezing fits, and truly live my life without being held back by allergies. Ready to live as if you don't have allergies, it's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter now. You don't even need a prescription. Go to ClaritinD.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin Clear uses directed. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. In the world of successful partnerships, names like Procter & Gamble, Ben & Jerry, and Supply & Demand echo through business history. But when it comes to growing your business, who are the perfect partners? That's you and Shopify. (laughs) Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. We're talking from launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the, did we hit a million dollar order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling shipping supplies or promoting productivity programs, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Picture this, a time when my business was facing a tough hurdle and I wasn't sure how to break through. But then came the breakthrough moment, a game changer that took my business to the next level. You know, what I absolutely adore about Shopify is its unparalleled ability to adapt and grow with your ambitions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 75 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash Darius, all lowercase. That's D-A-R-I-U-S. Go to shopify.com slash Darius now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash Darius. I want to back up a couple steps here because there's a lot there. Um, so, Paul, what was the name of the video store? Hollywood Video. Oh, okay. So was it a um, franchise of a Hollywood video or was it your dad Hollywood video? His, his was Hollywood movies and he okay. sold it to the guys that were doing the roll up Hollywood video. Go, okay. Got it. So, so, so how, how many uh, stores did he have of the Hollywood? 15, I think. Yeah. What, did they take his name and turn, or was it, was Hollywood they video like a derived? Logo. They took oh, his Oh, no logo. way. Yeah. So, so, so Hollywood video was derived from your dad's business. No way. That's that's the that's the story inside the family. Yeah. Oh, no way. That's so interesting. Yeah. So I had a Hollywood video by my house in like early 2000s. Um, and so that that happened. You graduate. You, you and I are about the same age. So did you graduate college? What? Late 90s, early 2000s? 96 from college. Yeah. 2000 okay, okay. from law school. Got it. OK, so so I just have a question for you. Did you work at the video stores? I did. It's the first job I was ever hired to do and the first job I was ever fired from. Wow. So hold on. So how old were you when you first started working at the video store? I think I was uh, 12 years old. Yeah, I was 12 years old. So wow. Okay. So I worked so that you and I have something in common. And we didn't talk about this when we met the first time. So my father owned Texaco franchises. And I and I started working for my dad when I was 10. Um, pump and pumping gas. And now I will tell you what you also don't know is I worked at a video store as well. I mean, oh. that's why I'm that's why I'm so intrigued by this. That, and that yeah. was I was 17. Yeah, I was 17 when I had that job. But it was not for a Hollywood video or like any franchise. It was for a Korean family where the wife had murdered the husband in the video store. <laughs> I swear to God. 
Was there like a little chalk outline of uh, of dad on the floor? I'm not lying. The guy, the guy, it was like a, it was like a single shop and, and like, it was a unsolved mystery and they found the guy's body like two towns over and I lived in Orange County. So it's all like kind of like LA and like two cities over, they find his body like a week and a half later and the wife called him the dead guy. <laughs> oh, that's terrible. I shouldn't even laugh at it. We had shenanigans, but we didn't have shenanigans quite like that, you know, straight up freaking homicide so wow. yeah we, we we were all like oh man she murdered her husband but she didn't if she did she didn't get caught for it uh but it was such a good job man so how'd you get fired i love that job by the way but how'd you get the fired first first day on the job so we had a setup uh where where if the movie cover was on the shelf that meant the movie was in you'd pick up the cover and you'd walk and we'd exchange it for the movie itself the little vhs tape that you would take home with you but one of the things my dad realized was that customers didn't care if they put it back in the right order or not. So about five times a day, we would walk the stores and make sure that the covers were in the right place. Well, uh, we had you know shelves that went from the top of the ceiling all the way down to the floor, and the bottom two were really kind of hard to get to. So I got a chair, a rolling chair, sat in it, went all the way down one wall and all the way back. And by the time I got back, my dad fired me. Wait, wait, your whole, dad... He fired, he fired you he for said, efficiency, for creating efficiency. For efficiency, yes, because he said to me, and I have to say now, I was really angry then. He was, he was right. My mom was really mad, right, because she had sent me off to work with a little baggy lunch about four hours before that, and then I come home fired. Um, he said, "Listen, you make everything look easy, and this is going to be a problem for you your entire life. You can't show your math." And he's completely right about that. To this day, people look at some things that I do and they say, oh, that's easy, right? I'll do it. And it isn't easy. There's a lot of stuff that happens here before it happens in the world. And that's what I had done is I totally optimized that system of how do you check, you know, those 250 movies in in 10 seconds, right? Uh, he didn't appreciate that because of the lesson that it was for other people to sit down and be lazy and that kind of thing. It was his business, uh, right or wrong. It was his business. It was a good lesson. I was 12 or 13 when that happened. The only other time in life I've ever been fired was for the exact same reason. What, what, the exact what, same what, reason. I was what, given what a task. I thought it was going to be 12 months. It took me three months. And the guy looked at me and said, well, you didn't negotiate an annual contract, so you shouldn't have finished the job so quickly. I raised a round of venture capital for an employer, um, wow. which which weathered them through the 2001 recession and allowed them to stay in business. And he exited that company. But three months in, I had already raised the round and we were done, you know, yeah. and that's like not to tell anybody anything and get my year's contract, you know. Yeah, if you've listened to the show before, you would know that in my brain I'm thinking, fuck that guy. Um, so, yeah, that's not cool. Um, well, here's I, you know, the funny thing about that, and I think you will appreciate this. I got on a, a plane one time. This is the only guy I ever hated in my life, right? Because he fired me. He was really rude about it, too. And I, I, I look down, and he's sitting right next to me in first class. Oh, oh, and he looks just... up, and he recognizes me, and I recognize him, and I sit down, and we're about to go, and we're just hating each other. You can feel it. And something clicked in my mind, and I, I took my headphones off, and I said, hey, Michael, um, I don't want this to be an awkward uh, flight. I don't want to have this between us anymore. We don't have to be friends. I want to thank you for giving me the opportunity to do what I did. Maybe I disagree with how we parted company, but um, at least you took a chance on me, and I appreciate that. And let, me just, let me just leave that between us, and we don't have to communicate anymore. And so I did, and I left that that luggage that baggage there on the plane you know i didn't need to carry that with me what do you think was like the like that like what was the what's the message there for people listening that heard that is that god or the universe or whatever higher power you believe or don't believe in had put that guy in that seat for me to unburden myself because this was the kind of guy i would be driving down the interstate five years after it happened clutching the steering wheel white knuckled thinking about what I would really like to say to this guy if I got a hold of him again. You know, that was baggage. It, it was a it was a suitcase full of barbells that emotionally I was carrying around with me all the time. You think yeah. he was thinking about me? Absolutely nope. not. No, not I at all. I barely remembered your name. He probably. barely remembered me. Now, he did know when he looked at me and he knew exactly what I was talking about as well. 
So there was still some of that between us because he did go about it in the wrong way, just to set the record straight. But uh, yeah, and that actually happened to me another time in a place where I had a partnership dissolve and then was holding on to it and ran into those people and and did the same thing there. So I think the universe will serve me to repair <laughs> repair relationships that I probably should should uh, do a good job about anyway. It's it's funny. So during COVID, I had a couple of relationships like that that. I probably would, was like, they were just unresolved. They weren't things I was that mad about it anymore, but they were like business situations that had kind of gone sideways uh, that really, really angered me at certain points in my life. And both were within a pretty short period of each other, like about 10, 11 years ago. And both of those individuals, one or two weeks into COVID called me up to try to like reconcile, which I thought was kind of interesting. And, 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 you know, like, and I was cool with both of them. Like we had great conversations and they they had been like, really really good friends of mine that things just didn't work out and and i had really hard feelings to your point but uh, you know like the thing that you said a moment ago is something that i learned recently was when we do carry around these these former situations in our mind and we relive the anger and the pain it is the equivalent ed Milet calls it carrying you know suitcases filled with cement i think someone else that came from somebody else but um but yeah, like what suitcases are we carrying around filled with cement? You know, how, how many times do we have to like have a bad day relived in our minds? You know, is that is that kind of how you think about it? It is exactly it. And then, you know, whether you want to admit it or not, the the commitment that you've made in your mind to reserve space for that means that other things can't come into your mind and into your life. And so laying those burdens down have created more space in my life for good things to come in and has taught me on an annual basis to kind of go do a survey and say, you know, who do I have something against? Um, just two weeks ago, I was able to, to see somebody that, um, that I've been a little put out with because I don't think they did a good job for something I paid them to do. And uh, I was able to go to them and say, hey, I don't want this to be between us anymore. I'm not retrenching from my position that I don't think you did the job I paid you to do. But I don't want to be mean about it or I don't want to think about it ever again or anything of that nature. I'm not asking for the money back, nothing like that. I just want to kind of release the tension is the way that I put it. And, um, you know, that guy was, he was tall. He was two inches taller after that because he was laboring under that in a way that at some point he wanted to say that to me in his own way, but I was able to get out ahead of it. But I, it's an annual exercise for me now when I go through my annual goals. Mm. So you're like, okay, who are, who's somebody that I'm like, be laboring a negative feeling towards that. Where's that's the beef? like, right? Where's that's what the I beef? Think. Where's the beef? Who, who do I have beef with? Right? I'm yeah. A kid, I'm a kid of the eighties, right? I want to look at who's, who do I have beef with? And asking myself in that casual way, it will, it will say things to people. 90% of the time I just really, Oh my God, why am I thinking about this guy? He's not about me. Or, you know, this girl didn't mean anything when she did this or said that. And Maybe it's just my brain that I catalog things like that, but I think I think all of us do to some extent. It's For healthier sure. not to. And so, you know, 90% of the time I just release it and don't worry about making amends or any of that kind of stuff. The really big ones in my life, I felt like I need to go sort of on bended knee and say, um, I did you, I've done this as well. An ex girlfriend of mine did her totally dirty and never said anything about it. And when I came to faith, my own version of faith, that was something that was standing in my way for a long time. So I went to her first and said, um, you know, I just need to ask forgiveness and I hope you have it where you can give it. But I just want you to know, I want to lay this down. Did she forgive you? Um, she said she did. Yeah, I hope she did. Okay. That fault. She was not at fault. You know, it was it was me and it was 100 percent me. How, you, how old were you? Were you young when that happened? 28, 29, something like that. Um, you know, <laughs> right. you, don't, you don't feel young when you're that age, but, but, you know, you're still learning, you know, you're still kind of figuring out who the hell you are. And I think that, I mean, I think that's a life journey, but, but especially between the ages of like 20 and 40. Um, so let's go back to the business. So, so your dad sells to Hollywood video exits the business and then he gets into insurance and the insurance game, right? Yeah. So my grandfather had founded our insurance agency in like 1968 in its present form. 
And so, you know, he was of an age that he was kind of looking for a retirement. And so my dad was, you know, he was liquid. He was able to move around. He, he you know, he was young. He still, he was in his 40, early 40s. So he was still looking to do something. So he moved home, took over his dad's business. They worked as partners for a while. He bought his dad out. Um, and then he brought my brother into the business in that interim period while I was off doing other things. Um, yeah, so that was that was how that worked. And so, so how big of a business was this when your dad took it over? Was it pretty small or was it like, uh, like something substantial? Like what are we talking so about here? We think of the business more in iteration. So they were in a different business than we are in today. It just happened to be in the insurance space. So in the niche that they were in, it was one of the sort of biggest and most prestigious um, versions of what was being done in the country because nobody was putting the level of sort of customer service into the products that they were selling at that point, which has always been a hallmark of that business for us. We've migrated as products have changed, compensation has changed, that kind of stuff. We've migrated. Um, um, we still do a little bit of what they did, but but it's different now. We, we so, are so much I'm, more of a boutique level consulting shop on employee benefits plans now. Got it. Okay. So, so they were they doing just like property and casualty or like health they insurance or they were brokering largely voluntary like Affleck style products. They were brokering those into um, into really big um, uh, employers around the country. Uh, but okay. the problem with that model was, and my dad realized this as he was getting through it, like we were getting good that we could sell you know, 50,000 life companies. But if you lose one of those and you have 10 of them, it hurts. Oh. And you're going to lose them, not even by your failure, just by the fact that people's relationship change, their their orientation to the product changes. They already have other relationships, that kind of thing. So over the course of 10 years, he lost a couple of those big accounts. And it was like, this sucks. So he put us in a situation where it's like, we're going to take the benefits that we could give super large employers, and we're going to turn those into benefits that that local mom and pop shops, you know, 15, 20 employees can buy, same price, same service level. And then if we happen to lose one of those, no deal. Well, because he made that choice, uh, it was something that I could take over and run uh, and, um, and, and grow. And so that's what we've done since 2005. So, so interesting. So for listeners who maybe didn't pick up what trade just put down is you guys were dealing with these large enterprise clients. You guys basically had concentration risk. And for people that don't know what that means, that means that if I have 10 big clients and I lose one of my 10 clients, I just lost 10% of my business. Or if I lose two of my clients, I lost 20% of my business. And if you start thinking of your business in terms of profit margin, if I lose 20% of my revenue, that's probably my profit. You know, um, if I have a traditional business that's running a 20% Correct, profit yeah. margin, right? So that's why it hurts when I lose one 10% of my business client on a 20 or 25% margin. I just lost 40% of my profit more than likely. Now, yes, there may be some marginal overhead I lose too, but typically that's not how it works. So like that that first big client you lose is all profit. That's how that's I look exactly at it. exactly right. And then the, the second one, if you lose that, is all the growth money that you were going to invest in the business next year. Right. right. And uh, and unfortunately, things never happen in ones. They always happen no. in twos and threes. And so, you know, he had like two back to back years and, and we talked about it even as it was going on. And it wasn't anything like he didn't have somebody that did something really bad or stupid. He had two of his biggest clients. Be, one was acquired into a relationship mm -hmm. that already had benefits. The other um, uh, wanted to get into a certain sort of. Uh, group of people. And one of the ways to do that was to replace us with somebody else who was doing what we did. And it's just, sure. business. I mean, I play that game today. Of you course. Know? So it's just business, but man, it sucked to live through it for him. Yeah. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Interesting. So, so you, you guys end up flipping from a, this more like 
large scale enterprise client to a more SMB, small to medium sized business client, you took it down from 50,000 policies per client down to 15 or 20, and then spread your risk over a much larger book of business. That a number one, I just heard you say like, a that probably how long would that take to do that? To, 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 to diversify into that. So we didn't fire any of the large clients. We let them attreat over time, right? So that attrition happened and, you know, um, we tried to keep them. We tried to, you know, still earn the business and that kind of stuff. But again, things, you know, things go that way. So that probably took 10 years. And the last eight years has been uh, the first four of that was my brother and I in business together um, doing the modified version down to the smaller level. And then about five years ago, um, you know, we were proponents of healthcare reform. We believed that healthcare reform needed to happen. Now, selfishly, sure. we believed that it needed to happen so that health insurance got cheaper, so people had more money to buy the products we were selling, right? But we also looked at the runaway train of health insurance costs. And, and my dad had pulled us out of that business. It was a bad business. Your clients were never happy. Well, five years ago, we got on a whiteboard and said, we're going to get back into that business because we can keep other people's promises. And so we, we built a national health plan that we own. It's available in all 50 states. Uh, we've architected it in such a way that it's like 30% cheaper than most other plans. Oh. Uh, we had to invent a term called a decrement because most people get an increase in their health insurance every single year and they don't know what to do when they get a decrease in it. So we're delivering wow. that. Yeah. So it's more of a boutique and consulting style model on top of our health plan. It's been really fun. And, um, and the thing is on it's, I don't want to say autopilot cause I don't believe in that in business, but the product demand is great enough that I'm sourcing people to satisfy the demand rather than trying to create the demand in the first place. So let me ask a question. So did are you guys, uh, did you guys get into the carrier side where you're actually creating the policies and, and basically getting self-insurers and, and doing it that way? So you guys are exactly. actually, you are the insurance carrier. To, to, to a large extent, we are the plan sponsor, uh, and then we hire out the holding of the risk to, uh, right. to to other insurance companies. Yep. Right. So that's like a reinsurance type of like, situation. Yeah. I, 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 I'm an inch deep in a wild mile wide. I, I, I know yeah. enough to be d dangerous in, in, in a lot of industry. I tried, I tried actually starting an insurance carrier. That's how, that's how I know this, but yeah. Um, so interesting. So, uh, I want to, I, I just wanted to understand that. So you, in 05, you got into the business. It sounds like you were doing some stuff in the world of tech venture. You know, we were talking about some of the ISPs you work for, and then you end up, you know, in the, in the family business in 05, who was the CEO then your dad or your brother, or how was that set up? My, my dad had been this, uh, this is funny. My dad had been the president. And when I came on, in my own mind, I knew I had to take over because my brother, my brother was literally like my dad's best friend. And they had worked together forever. And he was, I mean, everybody's devastated when you lose a parent, but he was really devastated and just, you know, almost like just catatonic. He couldn't figure out what to do and did he even want to do it. So when I came home to sort of look and see how things were going, I knew immediately I had to step in and do something or we would lose that business, which supported my mom and, and 15 families. So it was really hard for me because I had not started the job at AOL yet. And I had to call them and say, I'm not coming and I owe you 40 grand in signing bonus back or whatever the number was. And uh, that was tough. But my dad was the president and I didn't want to take my dad's title. I felt like that was not respectful. Mm -hmm. So I called myself a CEO because that's the only thing I knew. And then unbeknownst to me, my brother thought that that was disrespectful to give myself a higher title oh. <laughs> than my dad had held, right? These are funny little things that, that happen now. We were always good. We worked it out. No big deal at all. But I think that was sort of interesting. So yeah, I came on as the as the CEO and began to sort of give it more of a corporate development style uh, company, you know, to build infrastructure that we needed to be able to support growth. And so, uh, how, like, do you mind talking numbers, like how revenue or anything like that when you came on? Um, I remember this. Our sales goal for the year was five million dollars in production. Uh, in new, new production, which in the the narrow voluntary space that we were in was probably the top five agencies in the country in 2005. So and that's that like five. Very important. Five, so five million in like commissions that would come in from brokering to these different big enterprises. Correct. Yeah, that was Got a it. big deal uh, for us. Um, now, what did that translate into is premium? 
you know, six to 10 X of that. So it's a $50 million organization at that point. And it's a 300 and something million dollar, you know, if you add up numbers in that way. Now, people in my industry, we don't think about that. It's commissions. What are, what are the commissions coming in? Got it. Got it. So, so you've yeah. grown it from 60 million to, you said five, five X that? We, that we five X the business, but we've, we've doubled the bottom line. And so, um, so you've grown the business tremendously and in the process of doing that, how, like what did the headcount grow to at, at its peak or how, where is it now? So we've, we've trimmed headcount. So it was, uh, it was, uh, 30 something, 32, 33 when I took over, uh, and we're sitting at about, uh, 18 right now and I've just hired three. Yeah. And so, so, you know, one of the reasons that I wanted you to come on the show was to really talk about your book and, and I brought it up earlier that a CEO only does three things. Obviously this came from from you becoming a CEO, learning how to build a great business. Um, I, having kind of been in a similar boat to you, um, my father passed away when when I was 22 years old. Um, So he was an entrepreneur. I grew up in an entrepreneurial family. And then I like just started businesses out of college and ended up being a CEO of a, of my end. We ended up having about 150 employees, but um, when I was 25, right, was when I started that business. So, so being, you know, there was no, what I always tell people is there's no book there. Well, there is now that you've written one, but there was not, uh, if you go back to 03, 04, 05, 05 is when you became a CEO. 03 was when I became a CEO of my first real successful business. There's no books you could read, no classes you could take. There was no peer, the peer groups like that were far and few between. YEO was out there then, but like, yeah. I, I, I didn't know about it until a couple of right. years later. Um, in fact, the way we know each other is that I joined Birthing a Giants in 06 when I was trying to find, figure out how to be a better CEO, which right. led me to like graduating from that program. And then, then now I'm in GOT, which is based on that program. So, so we know each other because of the program I took to try to learn to be a better CEO. Tell me about, a little bit about that journey for you of going into the CEO chair, not ever having been a CEO, and then really growing up in the business. Yeah, so it was uh, February the 14th of 2005. My dad passed January the 31st, and I hung around for two weeks and came to the realization I can't leave. Now, at that point, the moving trucks had already come to my house in Atlanta. I had an engagement ring already in my pocket for the girl that I was dating at that time who was moving to Virginia with me. All of that kind of stuff came completely. I didn't marry that girl. Those moving trucks had to unpack the house. All of that stuff, it was a real 180 in my life at that point. And so um, I remember sort of getting the crew together and making the announcement that I'm the, I'm the CEO and I'm staying and I got to figure this out. And I walked into my office, my dad's old office, closed the door and Googled, how do you be a CEO? <laughs> That's how far. And you know what came up? Absolutely nothing. 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 Nothing of any use at all. I don't even think they owned YouTube at that point. You know, like it was nothing of any use at all. And, um, and so I didn't say, Hmm, I must write the book at this point, but I pulled out a legal pad that I always kept next to my keyboard. And anytime I would learn sort of a CEO ish lesson, I would jot it down. And what I was doing was really thinking to myself, if I do this and hand my notes to my brother in a year, he can take over the business and I can go do the things that I wanted to do. Mm. And, um, and that wasn't the calling. It wasn't what he wanted to do. He never wanted to do that. Um, it wasn't after a while what I really wanted to have happen. And so several years later, when I started uh, consulting for other agencies, other people would come to us and say, hey, we want to run our business so that it looks like your business. How do we do that? And a lot of insurance companies would hire us. Allstate would hire us to go work with other agencies to get their sales operations up to the numbers. They didn't have KPIs, OKR. They didn't have any of that stuff built in. And so we, that's the only way I knew how to run businesses. So that's what we did. And they would always say to me, like, you need a book to teach this stuff. So one day I decided it was in the pandemic. I decided like, I need to, you know, if I'm not doing anything for the next two years of my life, because that's what we thought at the beginning of the pandemic, you know, I need to go ahead and get this book written. So I banged it out and hired the editors and publisher, uh, picked it up and, you know, the rest is is history so far. I just had a conversation with uh, somebody that you would know if I dropped his name, who said, I want you to do a second edition of the book and I want to write the foreword of it. Uh, that was at one o'clock this afternoon. So it's, it's had a, it, it has had a life of its own. It's like 60,000 copies. And it's had a life of its own uh, in a way that I just didn't expect. 
there's not a week that goes by. I don't get an unsolicited email, LinkedIn, something with somebody saying, you know, the stuff in that book has really uh, changed my life or helped me in my business or whatever the phrasing that they choose to use is. But it's just a matter of focus. When you're the CEO, what are you supposed to focus on? Yeah. So if you don't mind, um, I have my take on this. I'd like to hear your take. What are the three things? I mean, obviously people will need to read the book. And I'm, let, me, let me take a step back because one of the things, like I, I was given kind of the synopsis of the book from Eddie Perez, who is now a mutual friend of ours. I, yeah, I think I, I introduced yeah. you guys. You did. Yeah. Thanks. So, and so, um, you know, he was the person that introduced me to the book and, you know, we had a conversation about it. And then, you know, I was like, all right, like, it's another book. I'm, uh, you know, like I have my thought, I have some pretty strong opinions about this and, and they align with yours. And I was like, all right, we'll see, like, is Trey going to come teach us about how to be CEOs? A lot of us in this room are already pretty successful CEOs, but I will tell you, man, like you have, and, and, and I will say this, your book's on my list. I'm going to read it. I'm going to, uh, it's going to be one of the 52 books I finished this year. So it's been on my list. I haven't got to yet. So I'm saying all this coming from an ignorant perspective, um, so far at least, um, but you know, you go into a lot of historical like storytelling in your presentation. Is that baked into the book as well? Oh yeah, it definitely is because I can tell you, you know, in an outline basis, anything, any, any structure of facts and figures, you, you, humans aren't wired to remember those most of us, right? But we know stories because we live stories. We envision ourselves as the lead actor in the greatest movie of all time. <laughs> so I so I had to create some excuse for having taken a history degree from a good university. So so I use stories to help people remember the lessons and to really sort of personalize themselves. Because if I can get you seeing yourself in a story, I can get you taking action that you will support yourself in. I love that, man. So I'm gonna I'm gonna preface that by letting anyone know who maybe is an experienced CEO. One of the things I loved about Trey and his presentation was the storytelling. I thought it was an, an amazing. Actually, before the show, we were talking about how he was asked back to come back to GOT, which for listeners who like, like, yeah, who cares? It's like, listen, nobody gets very, very, very rarely does someone get asked to come back to GOT two years in a row. It's like almost like I've only seen it happen once. And it was a person I invited to come back uh, to a year after that she had uh, came to the event the year before. Um, and so it's, it's a pretty big honor to do that, but let's talk about that. What, in your opinion, are the three things that a CEO needs to know? So the first thing, when I say the title of the book, a CEO only does three things. CEOs look at me and go, yeah, right. You should yeah. see my to-do list, right? And it isn't that. It's the thing, uh, the, the things that CEOs only can do means what do you have the authority and responsibility over that no one else does? Those three things are culture, people, in numbers. And it's not necessarily the content of those columns, but the agenda for those columns. Culture meaning what kind of place do we want to inhabit? People. Who do we want to put in that place? Numbers. What should those people be working on and how do we know if they're doing a good job? Just that simple. The problem is most of us work on a to-do list that is set by anybody we give access to. So if I uh, work in an organization right now with, uh, with 19 people in it, that pretty much means that 19 people can give me an action anytime they want to, either by not doing their job well or by coming to me for help and me volunteering to take that action and put it on the to-do list. This is not a very healthy way to go about things. Um, and so what I coach clients to do and, and what I encourage people to do in the book is if you're the top of the organization and you're the only one that has authority and responsibility to set the agenda in those three things, touch those things every day before you touch anything else. And that has the power to transform not only the organization, but the layer of people below you and to some extent, your life and how you orient yourself in it. Love that, man. So I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna give you my again. This is before I read. Uh, like I, I was giving your book or spoke to anyone about the book for that matter, or even heard you talk about the book. My position on this, you know, and, and as you may remember, I exited my business in 2020. I have a book, The Core Value Equation. I went out there and started promoting the book. It's about how do you build a core value driven organization, which speaks to the heart of one of your, your uh, tenants, right? Totally. Culture, right? Um, funny enough, is 
I, I say core values are the language of accountability in organization, and they drive all hiring decisions and all the results of the organization, right? Completely so it, agree. It actually, no objection. Spe- yep. Yeah, so it speaks to all three. Just it's a different way of getting there. Completely it's part of, it's, it's, a, it's a component of, of, of what you're talking about. So I always tell people, I say, look, I believe the CEO owns three things in the business. You own the bench, you own the strategy, you own the execution, right? Like, like what happened, or excuse me, the results, right? Which is, which kind of plays into what you're talking about. When I, I say agree. it, I say, I, you own the bench, right? So when I say that, and I, I want to say all that, because I want to get your feedback on how you think that aligns to your thinking. I say that, look, you own the bench. If you hire someone that someone's in your organization that's not doing their job, you either hire the person that's you either hire them or you hire the person that hired them or you hire the person who hired the person who hired the person who hired the person who hired. My last business, I had a thousand and plus employees, where it's probably seven layers of management. It could, it's like seven layer, you know, what's the seven connections to Kevin Bacon or whatever. Like, right. It would all trace back to me one way or the other, right? Right. So I was like, so so therefore you own the process of how they're being hired. And if they're the wrong person sitting in the seat or they're not being trained or they're not getting the resources they need, then you own the outcome of that. On the culture, that's, we kind of talked about that. Like you own, like, what is, what's this business look like? You know, what's the culture of the business? And the strategy is like, where are we going and how are we getting there? Right. So, so when you start thinking about that, like, how do you think those things overlay, you know, if you own the, the people strategy, excuse me, people strategy and results. How do you think that overlays to the, the things you're talking about in your book? So, so two things. One, I think they, uh, they, they line up spot on. So strategy and culture to me are the same thing, right? That in that vein. Now, not that they are the same um, activities or anything of that nature, but the strategy of the CEO should be apparent in the culture. The culture is rooted in the values of the people and show up in the behaviors of the people. So if you've got your values articulated, right, uh, if the insurance business became uh, illegal tomorrow, if, if the president said, hey, we're not going to sell insurance in this country anymore, I would take this exact team and we would choose vacuum cleaners, software, it doesn't matter to me. We would choose that. We would learn it. We would become experts in the product and that sort of thing. But our values wouldn't change, right? right. Our culture hopefully would not change at all. Um, our, our people hopefully would not change at all. The economics hopefully would not change or maybe they would even get better or what have you. Um, so those things are all the strategy, which is the direction that we are taking. So strategy Correct. and culture are super related to me. Um, results, results are numbers. Uh, a lot of CEOs will say, well, you know, numbers don't belong to me. They belong to the CFO. So whatever that is, if it's top line, bottom line, head count, uh, but they're also soft numbers. We're a goal setting organization and, and our primary uh, OKR at the end of every year is how many people hit all of their goals. Personal, family, that. production, income, uh, investment, all of those goals that we set out for each other at the, at the beginning of each year. How many of those hit it? That's a soft number, but it's a number that our CFO reports against and tracks on a weekly, monthly, and quarterly basis. Um, and then as far as people goes, you know, you've got it. It's the bench. Who's going to get you to be where you want to go? The strategy says go this direction. The numbers say this is how you know when you got there. The culture is the emotional fuel that allows you to do it. But who's going to do it? And how are you going to relate with each other? We are lined up all the way down the line. I, 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 it was like a rhetorical question, but I wanted to get your feedback on that. Yeah, uh, you sure. know, what, what, I can't remember. I'm blanking on the guy's name, but he's a very f- famous industrial psychologist, and he says, you know, culture eats breakfast. Culture eats strategy for breakfast. It's like, um, like what do you? That's yeah, Peter Drucker. Was, Peter Drucker. Peter Drucker. Yeah. That's right. Right. Yeah. So, so it's funny. Like, so I come from the world. Like, you're actually you might be able to relate to this. Like, you come from a financial services background. Now, I will say you, the fundamentals of the insurance business are very different than that of the mortgage, mortgage and servicing and, and lending business, mostly because if interest rates drop, it's, you don't lose half your pipeline. You don't, you don't, you don't lose. You have an annu, annuitized in, income stream that's relationship-based, and it builds slowly over time or aggressively over time, and you, know, you just kind of create more and more rewards if you do it well. But they're right? both supported by a sales and brokerage um, distribution channel. So I, I feel super akin to the mortgage business. We've looked at saying, hey, we export ourselves to the mortgage business in the past as well. So yeah, I, I, I see what you're saying there. Yeah. So what the what I say, what happens there, and I think this is where there is overlap. I do think that the fundamentals are different, which drives a little bit of a different behavior because it's a long-term business cycle as opposed to like a one and done. And then people are just kind of moving on to the next kill. 
right? right? And that, yep. that, that, that will drive a wedge between ops and sales a lot of the time. Every time. But, yep. but putting that aside, financial services, I find like this, like more of a warm, conscious mindset around taking care of their people. It just seems to exist a little less. And I think it's because there's much more of a transactional mindset when it comes to something that's finance driven, as opposed to maybe SaaS or some of these other industries that are more humanized. I always took the approach of, which is what you were talking about, which is, hey, look, like at the end of the day, I need a bunch of humans to show up, care about their job, care more than the company next door and execute on a better strategy so I can get better talent here to, to execute on a bigger vision, right? And so if I make it human centric, take care of my people, really focus on them doing a good job, I can then raise the bar on who, who I allow to be here. Absolutely. So I have better talent. And if I have better talent, I'm have better results. Um, Absolutely. Is that is that kind of you know aligned to what what you like? Is that your mindset? Tell, walk me through how you think of this. Again, coming from a financial it, services background. Yeah, I think of it in the uh, in the virtual uh, uh, virtual circle type of mentality. If I take care of my people, my people will take care of my customers. My customers will take care of me. That just goes on until it doesn't anymore. Like until it's too big, you know. Mm. And, um, the more selective I can be in choosing the best people to start the curve. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I love so that. I start recruiting even better and, and, and better people in the insurance business. Now I'm, I'm running multiple businesses right now, but in the insurance business, um, we don't take, we don't take resumes. We don't take job solicit. You have to be nominated by somebody that works there to get a job there. Period. Huh. The last three people that we've hired have been, you know, nominated by uh, hey, my second cousin is really good at this, and I think she'd be a great fit for this. Could we could we add something to the org chart in order to get her on board? That's the kind of growth that I'm absolutely loving. The second part of that is now I move on to the customers. You know, we're taking really good care of the customers. We call them clients for a reason. We take good care of the clients. Are they worthy of being taken care of in the way that we're doing it? Do they appreciate it? Do they know that we're different? Are they smart enough and engaged enough to understand that. If so, great. They can be part of our greatness machine to steal your, your thunder there a little bit. They can be part of that greatness, right? If they're not, th then we replace them. And, and we have done that in very difficult conversations before. Um, and I think to the benefit of both organizations. So, um, so there's that. So, so wait, did I hear you say that you're, you're, you're totally down to fire clients if they're not, that they don't align to your, to your values in the business? Um, yeah, I think, I, I don't know if I'd put it exactly that way, but we fire clients when they don't realize the impact of the good work that we are doing. We don't fire them if we aren't doing that good work. No, right? of so course, if, of course, if we're dropping balls and that kind of thing, we, you know, we work with anybody at any time and sometimes they will fire us as they should. Uh, but yeah, we don't keep clients uh, who are needy and disrespectful and, you know, not engaged enough to understand the value of what we're doing. I can throw a rock out my window and hit nine insurance agents. That's not hard for them to resource that sure. relationship. They cannot find somebody who's doing what we do at scale and quality. Um, so that's that's the whole hook that we hang that uh, that mission on. And we say that in the very first client meeting. We find yeah, this is, yeah. Well, I think it's an important part because I've what I've found is if clients you know don't align to your goals and they don't align to your culture or they don't align to your value system, where they're like treating you like garbage or treating your team like garbage, and if you as a CEO allow for that, you say, hey, 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 Sally, Tommy, Jorge, whatever, you just you know you got it. The client's always right. And they're like, well, no, this person's treating me like I'm a second-class citizen. They're being rude to me. I'm giving them the service that we promised, and they don't care. When I, as a CEO, tell them, yeah, just suck it up and go deal with it, I basically am taking a bullet and putting it to the head of my company and saying, our values don't mean shit here. Exactly. Um, so what is your real value in that situation, right? The money. real thing that you value is money. Yeah. 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 And, and, and that and isn't on our, our – we have a list of 13 core values. That isn't one of them. Not that yeah, you don't value money and what it does for of our people, of course, cool. but, but again, you can just bend down and pick up money. It's there if you, if you attune yourself to, to, to the needs of people who will exchange money for what you do. That's not a hard thing to do. That's not the mission that we're on. Yeah. 
So you've now since, you know, formed a family office, you guys are in other businesses. How have you applied this methodology, this, this framework to these other businesses? I'd love to hear a little bit about that. So we've acquired two businesses in the portfolio this year so far. We could have acquired four to six if we had if we had sort of been mentally prepared that, oh, this is the world we're in right now. Um, so we we didn't know that. So we cherry picked two of the best ones. Um, and the first one, you know, I came in and said, um, you know, we need to talk about our values. And they're all running around there. What are you talking about? The, the business just failed. We got to talk about how do we shore up revenue and all of that sort of thing. And I said, guys, I just wrote the check for the business. So I get to determine what we talk about. Okay. So here's what I want to know. What is it that you guys value? What kind of workspace do you want to live in? You know, what does that look like? And there was a lot of eye rolling. Like here comes this navel gazing, you know, hippie CEO who wants to talk about that stuff instead of the actual business. But I did that on purpose because I wanted those people who weren't comfortable with that conversation to hit more. And they did. We lost 65% of the headcount. We pulled an Elon, you know, in that company. Um, and we found later that very few of those were productive towards the place we wanted to go. They were productive towards the place that the previous owners and CEOs wanted to go, but not where we wanted to be. Um, and we have we, we now spend a full third of, uh, of all of the meeting time talking about values, celebrating each other's triumphs, uh, that kind of stuff. And, you know, sure enough, what happened yesterday, I got a call from one of our stars on the client services team who said, hey, I think that this person would be awesome. I worked with her in a previous job. I don't know when we're going to be hiring, but she should be at the top of the list. I have an interview with her Friday. You know, why would I skip over great talent? And when I talk to her, all she's going to talk to me about is Elaine told me what an amazing culture you guys have. You know what we do for a living? We barely know at this stage in that company, but it's because it's a full reboot. Um, yeah. So I, I, I'm insistent on taking those things and practicing them all the way down. Because look, Darius, you get this. You ran a much bigger organization than any I've ever run, right? Culture is the silent manager. It's yep. the belief system that's standing right over somebody's shoulder and say, wait a minute, before you cheat, lie, steal, cut corners, do any of that, please remember the value system that you signed up for here. And so I couldn't pay somebody to stand over and micromanage people that way, but people will manage themselves according to the, to the standards of the culture. I love that, man. Uh, so look, we're, I know we're, we're running out of time here and I want to respect your time. So, um, you know, we started the show and I started thinking about, you know, this book and, and, and really your thought process and you and I couldn't be more aligned about how we think about business. And I, and I don't care about, you know, whether you're running you know, a small business or a large business, I, I, leadership starts from the top and having the perspective you have, obviously you're the book you're, you've written is creating a lot of great goodwill in the world. Um, what do you think makes a good CEO? Well, a good CEO buys my book and reads it, obviously, you know, right? <laughs> now, I think a good CEO is somebody that knows the vision of what they're trying to accomplish and can share that vision with other people. Uh, and you see that going on, whether you call yourself a CEO, an owner, the guy that runs my tire shop, I had to take the car in the other day to get four new tires. Those people like that, man, they knew that this person ran out, took the order. This person ran out and got the tire. This, you know, they knew everything that was going on. He was a good CEO. He doesn't think of himself as a CEO. He's wiping dirty hands on his shorts and that kind of stuff. I mean, he doesn't think of himself that way, but he is. He was running the culture of that organization, which was super high service, super high turnover. You know, he's, he's recruiting people and paying them well. And he's focused on the profitability so that he can give them a week off every year and those kinds of things. He happens to be a, a benefits client of mine. There's not a lot of tire shops that are buying healthcare for their people. He's doing that, you know, so he's taking care of it and he knows how many sets of tires he's got to flip to make that profitable for him. And uh, so he's a CEO in my book. So a step going up a level, you know, how do you think people, someone, if someone wants to be a great CEO, how do you become a great CEO? Yeah, and I thought a lot about this when I was either saying, gosh, I know Darius is going to ask me the greatness question. Here's what I think. When I had a, uh, a sixth grade algebra teacher, her name was uh, Mrs. Madeline Brownlee, and she was about you know, seven feet tall because she had a bouffant hairdo. I mean, she was like right out of the 60s. She had polyester <laughs> suits that you could like shoot bullets at and they wouldn't you know, penetrate them. And she always had this like a little, um, like a bug or a butterfly or like a little brooch on her on her shoulder. And that was like her shtick. That was her, 
Like this is the thing, you know? And yeah. she was a tough old bird. Like she was not a nice and friendly grandmother to us. You know, I'm sure she was to her grandkids who are friends of mine now. Um, but that's how she was. And so when I'm in the sixth grade, I'm not l- looking to do anything to put my head up. It's whack-a-mole when you're in middle school. You know, you don't want to stand out from anybody. You want to be exactly like everybody else in the class to make totally. friends, right? So I'm there and she calls me the first day of pre-algebra or whatever it was we were studying. And she says, um, uh, Mr. Taylor, you're going to be the homework monitor this year. And so every day when we come to class, I want you to walk around and make sure everybody did their homework. You give them a yes check or an X for no. And if you don't do your homework twice in a week, you get an extra homework session on Friday afternoon. And if you play sports, that's going to cut into your game time and you won't be able to play games. That was okay. a big deal for the middle school. And we were a small school. We didn't have a football team. We had a basketball team. And so every week I would go around and, and my friends who were on the basketball team are, hey, man, be cool. Be cool. You know, and I am a very cool person, as you obviously you know, can tell from uh, from our conversation. But, um, you know, I would mark people off that did their homework and mark them, uh, mark them know if they didn't. So after about a month, um, the star, you know, of the basketball team didn't do any homework that week. So he, that meant he had to go to study hall on Friday afternoon, which meant he couldn't play in the big game against the school rival. So he was telling me like, hey, if you don't mark me correct, I'm going to I'm going to get you after class or whatever it happened to be. So Monday morning, man, I walked in. I had been, you know, shunned all day Monday morning because the guy didn't go and maybe we didn't win. And I walked into her office and laid the book down that she had given me. I said, I'm not doing this anymore. I don't know why you chose me in the first place to give me a job like this when all I'm trying to do is to make friends. And, you know, teachers have that patented uh, move where they sort of, you know, pull the, you know, she did that to me. She pulls her glasses down, looking over the rims of the glasses. And she says, uh, she points down at the line item that had my name on it. And I didn't do the homework two times that week. And uh, she said, Mr. Taylor, you said that you didn't do the homework on Wednesday and Thursday. Why would you mark yourself no on that? And I said, because I didn't do the homework. And she said, well, right and wrong matter, Mr. Taylor. And you're somebody that recognizes that. Now take this book and get back to work. And I walked out in absolute, just dazed walking out of the room. Why? Because for the first time in my life, she had shown me something different about myself in my identity that I didn't know about myself. Previous to that, I thought I was just the same as everybody else that I met. Mm. After that, I thought, I am somebody that recognizes right and wrong. And according to Mrs. Brownlee, not everybody does that. So what did she do there? Number one, she precepted a gift. She saw something in me before I saw it in myself. Secondly, she evoked it from inside of me and showed it to myself in a way that became my identity from now, from from then on. Ex voca, evoke, to call from within. And she showed that to me, and I walked out literally a different human than I had walked into that office. And I appreciated that in her. And, it, and I want to say it turned into love and respect instantly. I knew this woman had my back at that point. I was never bothered by somebody at that point. If they said, you know, be cool, don't mark me off, none, none of that bothered me whatsoever. To this day, if I'm telling somebody the truth and they don't want to hear it, it doesn't bother me at all. I don't get my blood pressure up. Nothing. That's a gift that she saw inside of me and gave me. I'd be walking down the hallway and she'd say, Miss Taylor, your, um, you know, your name is not on the student council election sign-up sheet. Why? I said, my God, I would never do that job. And she was like, get your name up on that list. And I'd put it up there just to make her happy because I knew she had me. I'm in politics to this day. The governor of Georgia announced his campaign from my living room eight to seven years ago. I'm in wow. politics because she said that I should be in politics and that my gifts were valuable. Uh, uh, two two weeks later, maybe I'm walking down the hall and here she comes with this weird looking kid. And she says, uh, this is uh, Oshin Najarian and you're going to be friends with him from now on. I want you to introduce him to all the good people in school and steer him away from the bad people. He just came from overseas. He grew up in Dubai. We had never heard of Dubai back in 88 or whatever that was. And to this day, he's one of my best friends on earth. Talk to him all the time. We're still friends. Why? Because she looked in and saw gifts in people and she brought them out. That's the definition of a great CEO. That's the definition of a great human being. Any of your listeners can do that tomorrow. 
you can go to someone and say, I see you in a way that you don't see yourself. And I want you to share the vision that I have. That's a greatness marker and something that I think we should do. It's something I try to do every single day. Before I complain about somebody, I try to show them something great in themselves. Everyone go out there, get the book. CEO only does three things. Um, So for people that want to connect with you, learn more besides getting the book or where do they get the book? Give us all the lowdown. Yeah, for sure. So uh, the book is on Amazon. Uh, We have a companion guide. The publisher ordered a companion guide. So it's got like a workbook that you can work your way through it if that's something that you want to do. It'll walk you through how to establish your uh, values, how to write about them, how to think about them. It'll walk you through a very novel recruiting process, Darius, that you and I had talked about before. And like, how do you establish those KPIs and hold people accountable against them? Uh, So there's that. Uh, my uh, consulting website for coaching and consulting is trinity-blue.com. And then if you like this kind of material, as it comes to me, I publish a newsletter. Uh, it's a Substack, and it's plantyourflag.live. It's a free subscription. I'll never charge for it. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's that's where you can find me and, and, uh, and participate in, uh, in the little mental journey that I'm going on. Awesome. Trey Taylor, you're a scholar and a gentleman. So much gratitude from us here at The Greatness Machine. You are listening to The Greatness Machine, and that's a wrap for today. Listen, if you love what you heard, subscribe to the show on whatever podcast platform that you're tuning in on so that you don't miss any of our future episodes. We have tons of great people coming on, and we're, we're stoked to have you here to enjoy it with us. Leave us a review. Tell us what you love most about this particular episode. We love getting the reviews. We love to see what you guys love most. And if this particular episode, you know, made you think of someone who's leveling up in their business and in their life, print screen, share it with them. Leaders are the best givers. And after all, we're all here to support and grow with each other. And in case you want to see some of the fun behind the scenes shots or some of the things that we're doing, I'm actually writing about this in my weekly newsletter. Go to www.therealdarius.com and subscribe to my newsletter. We're talking about fun things like business and life and mindfulness and cryptocurrencies and gosh, I don't even know everything and anything, but it's tons of fun stuff I write about. I try to get it out on a weekly basis. You can subscribe at www.therealdarius.com. And with that said, look, thank you guys so much. I appreciate you. I love you. Peace. We're out of here. See you guys on the next one. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.